All kinds of stuff coming up on today's episode. We've got Packer news. We're talking Brewers, NBA, golf. We've got a legend that's retiring that I think needs more hype than what she gets. And we'll start a brand new segment called, Are You Kidding Me? All that coming up on today's episode of the 414 Sports Podcast. Let's go. But instead, it's the 414 Sports Podcast, and it starts right now. Welcome in once again. This is the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillis. Thank you so much for joining us, whether you've done so on Google, Spotify, Apple, or any of the other five platforms that we currently reside on. Always appreciate you taking some time to listen to our podcast. On today's episode, as I alluded to in the intro, a lot to get to. So why wait? Let's jump right into it. And we'll start with the Green Bay Packers. The Packers on Friday will have their first preseason game against the San Francisco 49ers. Now we already know Matt LaFleur does not and will not play his starters unless there is some extraordinary circumstance. So what do we get? We get the second, third, and even fourth string guys who are trying to put something on tape to impress the coaches in their meetings in order to try and make this roster. Or if it's a guy who pretty much has his feet embedded into making the roster this season, maybe he can move up the food chain, so to speak, and and start finding himself some more playing time. So with that, here's a couple of things already that we'll keep our eyes on when we get to Friday. And we'll probably get into more of this a little bit later in the week. But let's start first with the offensive line. David Bakhtiari still is not practicing. Elton Jenkins, who tore his ACL back in November, still not practicing, still rehabbing. Two major cogs in that offensive line that are not ready to roll as of yet. Now, After saying that Matt LaFleur does not play as starters, what difference does it make if Bakhtiari and Jenkins aren't ready to go yet because they wouldn't be playing on Friday anyway? Here's what I'm getting at. Matt LaFleur has acknowledged in training camp that he's moving pieces around, that he's got a very versatile, which is a plus, offensive line, and he's moving these guys around trying to figure out what the best fit is. With that said... There's a lot of mental mistakes being made in the midst of all of this shuffling. You would expect that. You would expect a guy who maybe has spent the offseason learning the left tackle spot, now being moved to left guard, right guard, right tackle. There's technique changes. There's actual obvious movement as far as the playbook goes about what your responsibilities are. So these guys right now are trying to figure all of this out. They'll need to use these three games to figure it out. 
because the way things stand, Bakhtiari and Jenkins don't look like they're going to be ready for week one. So these guys are going to have to be ready, and they're going to have to be versatile because injuries will happen. And so a guy who might be playing Friday night at left tackle may find himself in the third preseason game playing right guard. That could be of concern if they don't figure out the mental aspect of it moving into week one. We have seen Aaron Rodgers not pleased when there are mental breakdowns anywhere within that offense. So making sure that gets corrected, making sure Jordan Love isn't finding himself on his back time and time again on Friday is going to be something to watch. So that prefaces into the whole Jordan Love thing. I'm saying this right now. Temper your expectations for Jordan Love. Jordan Love still hasn't gotten a ton of game snaps, so that's what the preseason will be for him. Don't expect, at least for me, I'm not expecting a guy to go, I don't know, 335 yards, three touchdowns, this, that, and the other thing. My biggest concern moving into Friday with Jordan Love, and I I shouldn't call it a concern, it's the two areas I'm looking at, is number one, accuracy. Is he putting the ball where it needs to be to the receivers when pass plays are called? Guys are going to drop. Listen, we're going to get a bunch of young guys on the field on Friday and the remaining preseason games. There are going to be drops, but I want to see if that ball is hitting those receivers where it needs to be, that the drops or the misses aren't necessarily on Jordan Love. It's on the receiving core. Third, I don't want it third, maybe second. Where am I here? I can't even talk this morning. So we'll say the second item I'm looking at is the interceptions. Can Jordan Love, and this goes back to the accuracy, can he eliminate interceptions and not even even sniff an INT? So I'm not worried about how many yards he passes for. I'm not really concerned with how many touchdowns he throws. I'm looking at accuracy, plain and simple. Is he accurate in throwing the football? And finally, I want to see Jordan Love in command. I want to see him being the field general when he's out there. I know that's tough when you're looking over your shoulder and you've got the four-time MVP and future Hall of Famer standing there watching you play. But when you're on that field, I want to see you take charge. I want you to be the field general. Aaron Rodgers is not even going to put pads on. Don't worry about Aaron Rodgers. Take care of your business. Start making a name for yourself. Because whether it's after this season, the next, or the one after, even if you're not with Green Bay, Jordan Love is going to be a quarterback somewhere in the NFL. Start taking that next step and showing your leadership ability once you're on the field. The last thing I'm going to take a peek at watching the game on Friday is going to be special teams. We bring in Rich Bisaccia from the now Las Vegas Raiders, who did a phenomenal job last year as uh, a coach there in the midst of all of the drama that was taking place with the Raiders. We bring him in. He takes over special teams in an area that was just an absolute disaster for the Packers last season and seemingly cost them 
their uh, their playoff game against the 49ers. So I want to see what Rich Passaccia brings to this special teams unit. Now, I'm not expecting massively great things on Friday from special teams because, again, there's going to be a lot of young guys who are going to get their opportunity to try and make the team. They're going to be, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, dumped on the special teams unit. So Coach is going to have a number of young guys, a number of, uh, uh, shall we say, green uh, behind-the-ear guys who haven't had much, if any, NFL experience in trying to piece together special teams units that are effective. This will be a huge stepping stone to see whether or not Rich Passaccia is who I think everybody believes him to be, which is an excellent coach, an excellent leader, a no-nonsense guy, and even though he's going to have a bunch of young players within his special teams unit, I think we're going to see something a little special with Rich Passaccia that we haven't seen the last few years when it comes to special teams with the Green Bay Packers. So again, that game taking place Friday in the Bay Area. We'll probably talk about a little bit more as we make our way later into the week, knowing today is already Wednesday when we're putting this podcast together. But in doing so, wanted to preface a couple of things getting ready because I'm excited. Football is about to begin. If the preseason is beginning in the NFL, then I know college football is right around the corner. And, and that's that I don't know about you, but that's just my happy place. That's when that's when life gets gets really good. All right, let's take a break. On the other side of this quick timeout, Brewer fans, be careful what you wish for. We haven't talked in a while. And since the last time we talked, a few things have happened with regards to our Milwaukee Brewers. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So let's talk about our Milwaukee Brewers. Now, as we put together this podcast, they're in the midst of a two-game set with the Rays at American Family Field before taking on the now NL Central leading St. Louis Cardinals. We've been saying for quite a while on a number of episodes, you have got to extend a lead against the St. Louis Cardinals because they to me, seemingly like Michigan State and college basketball, when you get to crunch time, they find ways to win. And that's what the Cardinals have been doing here as of late. They have leapfrogged the Milwaukee Brewers, even though the Cardinals got trounced last night by the Colorado Rockies. Now the Brewers are in that wild card hunt. Still a little bit of time yet to regain your composure and get back into the lead of the NL Central. But this was the team all along we were keeping our eyes on. So the Brewers 
get a 5-3 victory again over the Rays. They'll have one more this afternoon again before they take on the St. Louis Cardinals, which will be key as far as games go within the NL Central. Somebody's going to come out of there a couple of games ahead, and these two teams, meaning the Cardinals and the Brewers, will match up a few more times down the stretch. It's going to be nail-biting baseball now because the Brewers have relinquished what was a command over the NL Central, have given that up a little bit since a trade. But before we get to that trade, Freddie Peralta back in the mix last night goes five innings, two hits, two earned runs, four strikeouts. But it was Peralta being Peralta on the field, having command. It felt like having Freddie back on the mound last night gives the Brewers once again that core. One through three with the pitching staff, a solid foundation. We'll still tweak with four and five, making things happen. But with Freddie back, that pitching staff now solidified the way it was earlier in the season. And the team last night looked like the team you hope to see time and time again when the Brewers take the field. You get somebody like Willie Adamas who goes two for three. I mean, everybody last night found ways to contribute, whether it was hitting uh, sometimes it was just drawing a walk like Christian Yelich has found a way to do time and time again since moving to that leadoff spot. Whether we're talking about Tyrone Taylor making a great play in the outfield. Last night to me was what I want to see time and time again from that Milwaukee Brewer team. Now, did they win? Of course, they got that 5-3 win, so you're feeling a little bit better about it. But the way they went about their business last night... They had a little swagger about them, I guess is the easiest way to say it. And that's what I want to see down the stretch, especially when they got to play a team like the St. Louis Cardinals. Don't get tight. Go ahead and have a little swag about you. You have had the NL Central lead for the better part of the season. Act like a team that belongs there. And that's what I want to see out of my Milwaukee Brewers down the stretch. One more game again against the Rays. That will take place today as we're putting this podcast together. And then that big series against the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, the Brewers have been a little iffy since the trade of Josh Hader. What I find amusing is, and I and I realize it's what gets talked about daily when you have to cover teams, and that was the fact that Josh Hader was struggling before the All-Star break, a little bit after the All-Star break, even though he got a few saves thrown in there. It wasn't the Josh Hader of old, so what did we hear on Sport Talk Radio here in the 414? It's time to get rid of Josh Hader. Josh Hader has to go his time is up. We've said time and time again, even on this podcast, there are certain positions that when it goes, it goes. Offensive linemen, relief pitching, one minute you can't do anything wrong, and the next minute you can't get out of your own way. And so everybody reacted to what was happening to Josh Hader. It was time, and the Brewers did what? They traded Josh Hader. Traded him to the San Diego Padres, along with seemingly half of the rest of Major League Baseball got traded to the San Diego Padres. But now being out in San Diego, the Brewers kind of struggling a little bit since losing their closer. There's a couple of theories. One is the fact that just it's the ebb and flow of baseball. Two is the fact that here's a guy who was 
a big part of how you went about winning baseball games and suddenly that individual is gone. How do we react to that? Especially how do we react to that? And I think this is the bigger issue in that the Brewers really didn't bring anybody else in. They got they got a couple of prospects. You get some pitchers. That's all fine in the hater trade. But the one thing that seemingly anybody who covers baseball has talked about all season long is the Brewers need a bat, and they didn't get one. And because they didn't get one, it almost felt like you were trading as opposed to bringing people in. Now, we always get to those those that are getting rid of and those that are pulling in at the trade deadline, meaning the ones who are trading are the teams that, you know, we're rebuilding. We don't have a shot this year. The ones who are pulling in are saying, listen, we're going to make a run for it. And the fact that you didn't pull in a bat, I have a feeling, is what kind of has people on edge. Josh Hader hasn't necessarily lit the world on fire with the Padres, but the Padres haven't necessarily lit the world on fire since making all of those acquisitions. The Brewers have got to figure out a way how to get over this if they're going to be the team that we had hoped at least winning the NL Central, getting into the playoffs, and maybe doing something this year. I think, again, it's time for the Brewers to take that next step. It took a while for the Packers. I mean, if you think back, and I I always use this predominantly as my baseline, when the Packers got Brett Favre, when the Packers then acquired Reggie White, they didn't immediately go straight and win a Super Bowl. It took time, and for the Packers, it was getting through Dallas. And then it was getting through San Francisco. And once they kind of knocked those glass ceilings down, that's when the Packers became perennial Super Bowl contenders. It's time for the Brewers to take whatever step necessary to knock the glass ceiling down and start making themselves at least National League contenders. There's a ton of pieces on this team that have underperformed ever so slightly. And in a game like baseball, that's really all you need. I'm not talking about a 300 hitter who's hitting 125. I'm talking about maybe a 290 hitter who's only hitting two and a quarter or 230. Those slight differences will make or break you when it comes to baseball. They're going to have to figure this out. And so the trade of Josh Hader, what amused me, I guess, if there was amusement to be had, was the fact that you had, again, all these people talking about, it's time to get rid of Josh Hader. He's done. It's over. Let's get something for him. Let's move on. And as soon as they got rid of Josh Hader, all of a sudden the phone lines on these various sports talk radio shows are filled with, what are the Brewers doing? Why would you get rid of Josh Hader? Have they lost their minds? It's it's just an instance of be careful for what you wish for. And so many people were wishing for the trade of Josh Hader. They did. Let's see what happens. So the Brewers again with a game against the Rays. That'll take place at home here this afternoon before they take on the arch rival. Say, I almost said Chicago, St. Louis Cardinals in a very important weekend set, especially with regards to the NL Central. Let's take another quick break on the other side. Thank goodness for Giannis. I'll say it again. Thank goodness for Giannis. 
because the Bucks don't have to deal with half the drama. Now, I'm not. I'm sure if you get into the front office down at Fiserv Forum, I'm sure there are days where things can get a little bit tense with regards to players and management and all of that. But it definitely does not exist at the level of uh, what some other teams are going through through the soap opera that has become their off season. And another example of that is Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets. We'll touch on that in just a sec. talk about Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets. Now, Kevin Durant has made it known since uh, free agency began that he wants to be traded, that he's done in Brooklyn, even though he has just over a year ago signed a four-year extension worth $148 million. He no longer wants to play in Brooklyn. So he goes overseas to meet with the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, Joe Sy, and essentially says this, I still want to trade, but if you're not going to trade me, I want Sean Marks, the general manager, and Steve Nash, the head coach, gone. So you can keep me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a power play here. You can keep me, but if you do, you need to get rid of the coach and the GM. And if you're not going to do that, well, then I want to be traded. This is one of the marquee players. (laughs) This is one of the best players in the NBA in the midst of a power struggle. And again, this is where organizational culture and leadership are ever so important. When you put the right people in the right place, whether it's at GM, whether it's head coach, even the players themselves, when you put the right people in the right place, your organization will flourish. And I'll use the Bucks for example. The Bucks right now, top down, when you go from the top of that front office to the finance department, to tickets, I don't care what it is, to the GM, to your star player in Giannis. When you have people of character, when you have people who build culture, when you have people who have leadership, who own and take responsibility, that's when you find yourself with an organization that will prosper. And that's what the Bucks have had since Herb Cole has sold them. And they don't deal with the drama that we see with other organizations. So Joe Sy, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, set himself up for this. He gave Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving a ton of latitude when it came to decisions. Kind of go ahead and tell Sean Marks who you want for coach. I mean, it was wildly reported that Steve Nash was handpicked by Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to be their coach. It was widely reported that both of them wanted someone like Steve Nash 
who could have some input. But listen, it, you know, we're, we're stars. We know what we're doing. Just let us go. And now suddenly we're going to use this as a power play. So it's going to boil down to what will Joe Sy as the owner of the Brooklyn Nets do? Now you've put yourself in a position where as the owner of this team, by giving the latitude you did to your two-star players who have taken it and run amok essentially with it, what are you going to do to kind of pull the reins back in and regain control of your team? If you're going to trade Kevin Durant, okay, but you're going to get a haul for him, and you should not trade until you get a haul for him. When you see some of the trades that have happened already in the NBA, if you get nothing in return seemingly for a Kevin Durant, that will be another indication of the culture and leadership and all of those facets I just described within your organization. So Kevin Durant, if he gets traded, Brooklyn, you bet you better get you better get what the Padres got essentially in Major League Baseball at the trade deadline. You better just, you, my goodness, I can't even go through the number of players that you should get for trading the likes of Kevin Durant. And if you're not going to trade Kevin Durant, you're going to need to be prepared to sit and watch your team struggle because I have a feeling Kevin Durant will then decide to hold out. And heaven knows what Kyrie Irving will do. You signed, you signed him to his option, and Kyrie Irving has been anything short of uh, substantial when it comes to his his ability to be trusted. Like there are going to be times when Kyrie is there, and there are going to be times when he is not. So now you've got your two remaining stars who don't necessarily want to be there. What are you going to do? Kyrie Irving has spent the offseason trying to find his way to L.A., L.A. has nothing to offer. So Brooklyn's in no hurry to try and trade him because they're not going to get anything in return. Kevin Durant is a superstar, one of the best players. Thank goodness Kevin Durant has big feet because if he doesn't step on the three-point line, who knows if the Bucks make that run for their NBA championship. He is simply one of the best players who right now is seeing a culture within an organization that is crumbling, and he's trying to get out of it. The problem, though, is that he created some of that. I wouldn't put it all on Kevin Durant. That's completely unfair. But he did create some of that. And so, again, as Bucks fans, we have to rejoice in the fact that top-down, as I said, from front office to the court, coaching staff, you name it, that what is in place is solid and the structure and the culture and all of that is there that gives us an opportunity to root for a team that is, again, going to be a championship contender moving into the next season and not having to deal with some of the nonsense that you're seeing, for instance, out in Brooklyn. Again, is it and will it be interesting to talk about and watch? Yeah, but if I'm a fan of the Brooklyn Nets, man, I got to be throwing my arms up figuring who else can I root for because this is nothing short of a hot mess. And what will really make it a hot mess is if the New York Knicks make a few more moves and they become the talk of the town 
a team that has not been relevant in, what, 20 years, if they become the talk of the town and Brooklyn now becomes that, that oh, person in the background who no one notices, boy, that'll set, that'll set things off for who knows how long. All right, let's move into golf here as we continue with the 414 Sports Podcast. We saw something happen this week that we knew was going to happen that is a precursor of what is to come, and that is the Live Golf Tour and the PGA going toe-to-toe in the courtroom. So you had three golfers who had filed a temporary restraining order against the PGA. Taylor Gooch, Hudson Swafford, Matt Jones filed a restraining order because they wanted to play in the FedEx Cup playoffs, which begin this week. It went in front of a U.S. District Court. Beth Labson Freeman was the judge presiding, and she ruled against the players. She ruled against the players because they could not prove that there was any harm caused by them through the PGA. And and simply what it boils down to is that the players who go to the Live Tour know what the consequences are with with regards to the PGA. And they've been paid quite well. So the PGA barring you from not playing in the FedEx Cup playoffs is not necessarily doing you any harm because you got paid by the Live Tour. Also, she noted in uh, her ruling that these players who went to play in the Live Tour, who are playing in the Live Tour, knew the consequences of going over there. And so knowing what the consequences were going to be, knowing that they cannot prove hardship because they're getting paid by the Live Tour, there was no reason to find in their favor. Now, why is that important? Because there's another case that soon will be heard, and it's an antitrust lawsuit led by Phil Mickelson and other members of the Live Tour that is going against the PGA for what they say the PGA has done to their career. Why is this case, this ruling important? Because I think it's a precursor to what you're going to see being ruled for once the antitrust lawsuit is put out there between, again, Liv and the PGA. The guys who left the PGA Tour knew what the consequences were going to be, and they've been paid a ridiculous amount of money to go, pay, to go play excuse me, on the Liv Tour. So in doing so, there is no hardship whatsoever that can be taken, and therefore, i got to believe the courts are going to rule in favor of the PGA. Now, one, one item in the story that came out I think is really, really interesting and I think is something that's going to get a lot of attention moving forward, and that is... Some of these players that have been paid enormous sums of money, their tournament checks 
essentially are being taken out of that pool of money. So if if I go to the live tour and I've been paid a million dollars up front to play and I win on tour on the live tour and let's say I win 200,000 I'm not getting 200 that 200,000 is being deducted from that million. It sounds strange. I had to read the story like 3 or 4 times and the way it was written that's how it is being portrayed that you have some players that are having their winnings being deducted from the initial upfront money that was promised them. So I don't know if that's going to change some things. I do know the Live Tour is, is getting to a point where, A, they're, they're going to need, they and the PGA Tour are going to need to sit down and figure something out. Because you, there are reports of some other players that are getting ready to make the jump because the almighty dollar uh, is, is too much to pass up. But if the Live Tour continues to grab players, this idea of a shotgun start, th- this, this idea of it looking for me personally more like a, a charity outing as opposed to a professional golf tournament, these types of things are going to have to change. For instance, if you keep pulling players in to solidify your group when it comes time to play a tournament, if it keeps growing, you can't do a shotgun start. It's just not going to work. So the live tour, though trying to do some things differently, won't be able to sustain that model if they keep bringing players in. But the big story will be moving forward, that antitrust lawsuit. And again, I think what we saw this week with the temporary restraining order that these golfers put up against the PGA and having it overturned, I think is a bit of a precursor of what we'll see when we get to that antitrust lawsuit, which probably won't find its way to a courtroom for a couple of months with that. Let's take a quick break, and on the other side of the break, one of the greatest in the world of sport has decided it's time to retire in the near future, and we'll talk about Serena Williams in just a minute. So, Serena Williams, in an article written for Vogue, in essence an essay, said that it is highly, highly, highly probable that after this year's U.S. Open, she will retire from tennis, competitive tennis, at the age of 41. Now, for those working the ticket counter at the U.S. Open, get ready for some long days because you know tennis fans are going to be flocking to Flushing Meadows in order to pick up tickets to see Serena Williams in what could be her last hurrah, especially at a major. And having the ability to finish her career on her terms for someone of her stature who's still competitively strong, it's an amazing story. And it goes to me to show how in the world of 7 million channels on cable, 
we've lost the stature with regards to tennis. As a kid, when when you weren't getting 24-hour television and, as I said, you know, 7 million channels, it was cool to get up and watch Wimbledon on a Saturday and Sunday morning because NBC would show those matches and you would have something different other than cartoons, let's say, on a Saturday morning. And tennis was more widely covered at that point. And the Chris Everts and the Martina Navratilovas and the John McEnroe's and Jimmy Connors and all of those players were iconic because tennis had a stature. And since the inundation of the various sporting events that we get now, tennis is taking a back seat, kind of like boxing. Remember when boxing was it? Boxing trying to and has sustained a bit of a comeback kind of fell off the same way tennis did. And what doesn't get covered, I think, is the fact that one of the greatest, and and people, you know, you, you throw around the greatest, right? We talk about the greatest NBA players, the greatest football players. It's generational. It's this, it's that. But by far, one of the greatest tennis players ever is Serena Williams. She she had been ranked number one for 319 weeks, 186 consecutive weeks. She finished the year number one five times in the midst of heaven knows how many majors and grand slams, I believe for singles, it's at 23. She is undoubtedly one of the greatest to ever play in a sport. And so to know that one of the greatest is deciding to hang it up is going to create a bit of a buzz. And so, as I said, congratulations, first of all, to Serena Williams because she is simply one of the greatest ever in that particular sport. But good luck to the ticket office at Flushing Meadows and the U.S. Open because you're about to work some overtime because there are going to be a lot of people who want to come out and see Serena Williams in what will be her last major. All right, we got a new segment that we're going to introduce today, and it's called Are You Kidding Me? And we'll get to it in just a second. All right, so let's wrap things up with a new segment called Are You Kidding Me? And Are You Kidding Me stems from driving on the family vacation down through the southeast listening to a lot of sport talk and my initial reaction to some stories with, are you kidding me? So driving, oh my goodness, near the Ohio area and hearing all about Kareem Hunt and wanting to be traded and all of the various storylines there, my initial reaction was, are you kidding me? So that that's kind of where this all stems from. So the first, are you kidding me, is going to the San Diego Padres, who traded for seemingly everyone, 
but got the the prize of the trade deadline, and that was Juan Soto. So they make the trade with the Washington Nationals to get Juan Soto. In the midst of speaking uh, to the media, Mark Antanasio of the Milwaukee Brewers, who is just been an unbelievable owner. I mean, what he's done for this city and what he's done with the organization is just beyond commendable. But he's the first of the are you kidding me when in the midst of the press conference, he discussed the fact that there was talk or there was interest or there was the possibility of the Brewers getting Juan Soto. And when I heard that, my initial reaction was, are you kidding me? This goes back kind of like when we got CC Sabathia and we made CC Sabathia a contract offer, a very nice contract offer, but we knew even though how nice that contract offer was, it was going to be peanuts compared to what the New York Yankees were going to offer. So they offered it and said, listen, we, we offered, you know, a hundred, what was it like 110 million? And we just got outbid. There's nothing we could do about it. But when I heard that the Brewers could be in the running for Juan Soto, my initial reaction was, are you kidding me? We couldn't find a bat anywhere and we were going to get Juan Soto. I, I just, Sometimes I, you just you just don't know, and you roll with it, and you have to smile and move forward. So with that, we'll wrap things up on this edition of the 414 Sports Podcast. I'm Don Wachillis. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to listen, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care of one another.